Soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went along with him. As he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her, and he said, Don't cry. Then he went up and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, Young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. They were all filled with awe and praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. Well, do please uh, keep that passage open. Uh, well, as Ali mentioned earlier, I guess you would have struggled to miss the fact that uh, this weekend has slightly been dominated on the TV and the newspapers with the fact that it is Valentine's Day yesterday. I wonder, did you engage with any of the celebrations? Valentine's, actually, Valentine's Day actually began with the celebration of a man, Valentine of Rome. And he was a person who was known for performing weddings for soldiers who had been forbidden to marry before they went to war. The Roman soldiers, they were quite like that. You know what it's like. So he was, began to become, become known for his compassion towards these soldiers. But he ended up being thrown into prison for those acts. And when he was in prison, he then became later known for his sacrificial love towards the inmates that he was chained to, many of them who were Christians under the persecution of the Roman emperor. It was a number of centuries later that Valentine of Rome uh, was remembered and celebrated by the church. He became a man uh, known for his compassion and his sacrificial love. But it's the love that he tried to preserve for those soldiers, the romantic love that what he is best remembered for. By the 18th century, valentines were overwhelmingly gifts to show romantic love. And in that era, it was cut flowers were the thing of the day and boxes of sugary sweets. By the 19th century, Valentine's cards had kind of come into vogue, and today it has grown into a huge business. In this country alone, it is worth $2 billion, apparently, to the economy. Now, this next statistic might put some of us to shame. Do you know what, in America, the average amount spent last year on Valentine's gifts were? $150. There we go. The romantic Japanese, though, here's a brilliant one I found out. They've come up with an ingenious plan to celebrate Valentine's Day. They've made it the cultural norm that all women are, to be, are expected to buy Valentine's chocolates for every single member of their workforce that they work with, all the men. This is not reciprocated at all. But it does provide the Japanese chocolate industry with half of its annual revenue. That's amazing. In Portugal, Valentine's Day isn't called Valentine's Day. This is very Portuguese, isn't it? It's simply called Lover's Day. And people get the day off, as you can imagine. In Norway, they're really romantic. They call it Valentine's Stag. But, 
but at least they give each other flowers. Now, by contrast, get this, Malaysia, okay? Islamic officials warn against any celebration whatsoever. And in fact, last year, the government had a campaign. It had a really snappy title. Mind the Valentine's Day Trap, it was called. Amazing. Most shockingly, though, Saudi Arabia, they have a total ban on anything to do with Valentine's Day. In fact, if you're even seen wearing red on the day, you can be arrested. It's certainly if you're seen out with your Valentine, your special uh, lady or, or gentleman, as five men were arrested last year, you get a lot for this. Those five men that were caught last year got 32 years imprisonment together and 4,500 lashes. See, some people on Valentine's Day, they embrace it, and some people go the opposite way and they warn against it. But both groups are united in this one thing, that it is all centred around romantic love. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not going to be a spoil sport right now and sort of you know, condemn anything like that. There's nothing wrong with some romancing. It is beautiful, and the Bible tells us it is a wonderful gift from God. In fact, there's a whole book dedicated to that romantic love in the Old Testament called Song of Songs. And I have to tell you, it's very graphic on occasions. But if Valentine of Rome were here today, I wonder, would he be pleased? His compassion and his sacrificial love for others is completely ignored on Valentine's Day. All we celebrate is the romantic, and I don't think that really should surprise us. We live in a, a Western, a kind of, we call it a postmodern culture, and it's embraced the romantic, the experiential love as part of a, an ever-increasing kind of an emotional culture. Everywhere we look, the rational, the logical has been pushed aside by feelings and emotions and experiences. Let me give you one little example from the world of advertising. I don't know if there's any advertising guys out there. BMW cars, okay? For generation upon generation, they advertise their cars, and on every advert, on every billboard, in every magazine, there was one strap line. BMW cars were sold as what? The ultimate driving experience. That is, they were, they were pointing people to something that was objective, that was informative. Now BMW cars, they changed, didn't they, two years ago. Very famously, it was on the news a lot. What now is on every advert? It simply says one word, joy. It's incredible, isn't it? How people feel about the car has become much more important than actually the reality of the car. Yeah, if you went to, for example, another silly example, if you went to the self-help section of the bookstore, uh, 10 years ago, uh, the majority of the books, what would they be about? 10 ways to beget what? Successful. How to become successful quickly. Now, the majority of the books today has been a big shift. It's all about how you become happy. The feelings you see, the experiences, the emotions dominate. Now, they are all good things. Don't hear me wrong. And they are intertwined with, with love. They're outworkings, you might say, of love. But they're just one small element 
The problem is that when they become the primary understanding of what, our, what love is, we begin to lose sight of what true love really is. What it looks like and even what it feels like. And that is why today, at the end of a week where we've been examining this in all sorts of ways and with all sorts of people, we've been looking at true love. We come now to this extraordinary example of true love. You just heard that short passage read to you, a little story uh, in the Gospel of Luke. And let's be clear, this is not folklore or myth. Some of you have already cynically said, I'm dismissing that. Seems miraculous, it's myth. If you do that, you have to dismiss every ancient history that we know. This is the most historically verifiable uh, document within ancient history. If you don't believe me, come with me, I'll show you in the British Library. Essentially, there are so many numerous eyewitnesses within biblical accounts and outside that verify what you're reading today. And some of the geographical cues also help us understand the historicity of this document. Have a look down, if you can, if, uh, at chapter uh, 7, verse 1. Now, the chapter numbers are the big numbers, the small numbers are the verse numbers. Sorry if that patronises you, but if you're new to things, I hope that's helpful. And you'll see there, in the previous section, Jesus is up in a place called Capernaum. He's now moved 25 miles southwest to this little town called Nain. Geographical clues, helpful for historicity. And what happens, though, in this small town? Utterly amazing on a number of levels. And just over the next few moments, I'm going to try and show you, in the midst of this amazing story, an extraordinary example of true love. Four things, I've put them on your sheets about true love, I hope we will see. We'll see it's a compassionate love, a sacrificial love, a powerful love, but also a saving love. Let's get ourselves into the story, though, first. I hope you can uh, follow with me. Picture the scene, if you can. It's written in a narrative such that you ought to be able to picture it. Jesus walks into a town we see in that first verse. He's amongst his disciples and also a crowd of people. Picture it. You'd imagine all the attention would be on them, wouldn't you? As they come through the little town's gates. But the story shows us very early on, there's another crowd. And they're coming out of the town gates. And it's a crowd around this dead body in a coffin, carried out of the town, as would be traditional, to be buried. Funerals in that culture were not as we know them. You know, quiet, serene affairs. In fact, whatever your economic status, you would have always hired in professional mourners. And they would come with their wooden flutes and they would dance and they would wail. And they would make an absolute noise. And as the body would be lifted from the home to the place of burial, they would surround and make this cacophony of noise and wailing. The fact that the person who had died was the only son of a widow, we read, I guess would have only raised the volume. This woman cannot turn to the government and say, can I have some benefits, please? She is now going to be alone. She is going to be desperate, vulnerable, no one to provide for her. It should be no surprise that 
Hey, there's a large crowd coming out with her in verse 12. And the noise would have been deafening. The wailing is happening. The flutes, the crying, the shouting. Picture it in your mind. And what happens? Two crowds join essentially. And the epicenter of those two crowds, Jesus and this widow join. Look at verse 13. That's really where it comes together. When the Lord saw her, his heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. And here we get to the first point. They're very quick, the four points. That true love is shown to be a compassionate love. We see that in verse 13. Because that phrase, his heart went out to her. As you see it down there, it's about as strong a word that you can get for compassion within the language that this is written. Literally, it reads, a visceral love went out from Jesus. That is a gutsy love. Some part of him went to her. Now, if you're new to the Bible, to Jesus and all this kind of God stuff, you you may be slightly surprised by that response. Many people caricature God as a kind of, oh, he's aloof, he's distant, he doesn't understand, he doesn't know what London life is really like. Often people just dismiss him because of that. He doesn't know your pain. He doesn't know what you have to go through day in, day out. Well, Jesus literally here allows his heart to go to this woman. And this isn't an isolated incident either. If you were to turn on one gospel, you get to, to John chapter 11, for example, where his best friend, Lazarus, or one of his good friends, uh, dies. And what does it say of Jesus? He says he was deeply moved and later he wept. See, Jesus' love for people is compassionate. He understands our pain. He's felt it more acutely. His compassion, of course, is rooted in his own perfection, in his own selfless nature. This is a deep and a profound act, an extraordinary example of true love that we see in Jesus. Jesus essentially is showing us here, he's got a heart that reaches out to all of us. Whoever we are, whatever we have done, Whoever we think ourselves to be in comparison to others, Jesus' heart is going out to you as it did for this boy in his coffin and his distraught mother. Let's move on. Second point. So true love is shown to be a compassionate love. Secondly, it's shown to be a sacrificial love. Look at the beginning of verse 14 and you'll get an idea. Perhaps not obvious at first, but look what happens. Then he went and touched the coffin and those carrying it stood still. Now, the fact that these coffin bearers, you know, suddenly kind of come to a halt, something might have shocked them. You see, in that culture, to touch a dead person or even the coffin of which the dead person was in, it would make you, as their law understood it, ceremonially unclean. And that would require all sorts of things that the, he, the ceremonially unclean person would then have to do. They'd have to go to the temple, make sacrifice, in order to restore themselves to society. Essentially, if you were to go, I don't know what, to the local pub, it would say on the door, just above, above the door, it say, no unclean people here. You could not be watching Wales 
You couldn't be watching the Six Nations with a pint in your hand with people around you as an unclean person. You couldn't enter any public place or meet with anyone. You see, it's the other side of the coin. Jesus is compassionate, we've seen that already, but then he reaches out despite the cost, the sacrifice. It's a sacrificial love. Now, of course, Jesus shows this throughout his life and ultimately at the end of his life. As he offers his life on a cross, as Dickie mentioned earlier, and is the center point of his sacrifice, where he essentially says, I will take all the justice that you deserve, you, me, when you've ignored God, when you've actively rebelled against God. I'll take it all on myself. I will sacrifice myself instead of you. But for now, in this brief reaching out, recognize that the compassion of Jesus is exercised at a cost to himself. It is sacrificial. Now, I'm sure that you haven't missed out. You may have done, but every billboard seems to be pointing this way at the moment. The, the fact that the Valentine's blockbuster film of this moment is this, uh, it's being, talking about, being talked about everywhere. It's causing quite a stir, isn't it? I'm talking about that film, Fifty Shades of Grey. I haven't seen it. And I haven't read it, but I've read a few broadsheet reviews. Not tabloid, but broadsheet, just got to justify myself there. It's interesting, isn't it, how appalled even secular commentators are about the film. Let me read you one columnist uh, writing about it. Four things that they felt that this film teaches us. It teaches us this. One, if you are good-looking, rich or successful, you can develop a violent sexual appetite... And people will be okay with it. Point two. Sex is completely for pleasure and all love, romance and romance, should be removed from the situation. Point three. For girls. If you hang around long enough and put up with a guy's issues, eventually he might love you and change. And fourthly, for guys, you can do whatever you want to a girl... And she'll just take it because she's a girl. That is a secular commentator on that film. Yes, millions have read the book and more will see the film. Why? Because it feels good. The emotion of the moment, I'm sure, will be very exciting. The reality? It's certainly not love. Christian Grey, apparently the main character, is a violent, self-serving, abusive and manipulative man treating women as objects of pleasure. A man who amazingly requires a contract, apparently, in the film before he engages relationally with anyone so that there is no cost to him and no stopping what he wants and what he desires. I just want to say, heap that up against the contrast of Jesus Christ. True love in the extraordinary example of Christ is compassionate and it is sacrificial. But it doesn't stop there. Thirdly, we see uh, the extraordinary example of true love, we see it as a powerful love. 
I could have picked up a whole raft of adjectives to describe this section of this little story. But let's get back into the story to see what happens if we can. Look at verse 14 again, and I'll read verse 14 and 15. Then he went and touched the coffin, and those carrying it stood still. He said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk, and Jesus gave him back to his mother. What does Jesus do? He touches the coffin. He doesn't touch the body, though, does he? It is his powerful, loving words, his speech, that brings this boy from death to life. Now, of course, you will know, if you've read your Bibles at all, in loads of Jesus' other, you might say, lesser miracles of healing the sick, uh, restoring the blind, and so on, he often does touch the person. If you remember that? And they're healed. But here, in his love and compassion, as elsewhere, when he brings someone from death to life, all he does is speak. It is his powerful words that bring someone from death to life. The boy is physically dead. Everyone knows that around. They wouldn't have put him in a coffin. It would be pretty unfair if they did. But, you know, they, they wouldn't have put him there, would they? He's dead. Physically dead. But he was spiritually alive. For when Jesus speaks, he hears and responds. Wouldn't you love to have seen the faces of the, the professional mourners? There they are, wailing and playing their flutes, dancing around the coffin. The boy sits up, and what do they do? They turn to each other. Oh, no. I've lost my wage today, snap my flute, run off. You know, they're, pretty, they're pretty, uh, pretty quite annoyed about it, I guess. But everyone in those two crowds that are joined together would have simultaneously be feeling a, a rush of adrenaline. Goosebumps over every inch of their body. Some would be, I guess, shouting for joy. An amazing thing has happened. Some would just be, I just dumbstruck in awe. Some, I guess, were just chattering away, bemused. I wonder what the boy said. We don't know, do we? You see, the text is it's not clear. Why am I in a coffin, maybe? It's my first kind of guess. If he was English, of course, he'd probably sit up and comment on the weather. <laughs> but we don't know what he said. What we do know is what Jesus said. And it was powerful, wasn't it? Because Jesus' love is a powerful love, for by his word he can powerfully bring someone from death to life. In that sense, this act this acts as a loving and a very compassionate warning to all of us. For one day, without any exceptions, every single one of us in this room, and every single person out there as well, will be a boy in a coffin, or a girl in a coffin, and Jesus will speak as he promises he will one day speak on that final day. And the question is, will you hear his voice? In love, I guess he is calling you today through his words, now written in the Bible. He speaks lovingly now so that you will one day be ready for him. But how can I be so assured that Jesus has power that extends to us even today? It'd be very easy if you were sat here today feeling rather cynical. And you, I understand that. I was once that. And you're thinking, hey, 2,000 years ago, this bloke does these things. Maybe. But what effect is that going to have on me today? He's just a freak healer, surely. Isn't he just a, a nice bloke who said a few nice things? Nothing more? I want to say to you, if you are cynical today, 
And if you think Jesus was just a healer, if you think Jesus was just a teacher, I would encourage you, ignore him. Your life will be better without him. Paul the Apostle actually says, you should be pitied above all men if Jesus isn't who he claims to be. Jesus is the extraordinary example of love. And if he is just that though, an extraordinary example, if all he can show you is a bit of compassion, a bit of sacrifice, a bit of power. Well, let me show you how the story goes. Because it pushes us much further. Perhaps even uncomfortably further. Last point, very quickly. True love is shown to be in a... a, a, in a saving love here to finish with. Let's get back into the story. Just last two verses very quickly. They were filled with awe and they praised God. A great prophet has appeared among us, they said. God has come to help his people. And this news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. So we see the people here. They describe Jesus. How? It's a great prophet. And that was, at that time, just simply the highest praise that any of these people could give Jesus. But they were more accurate than they knew. Because you see, back nine centuries before this, back in a book called One Kings in your Old Testament section of the Bible, there was another prophet called Elijah. It's interesting, he entered a town, a small town, called Zarephath, much like Nain. And he met a widow, just like Jesus met a widow, whose son had died. And the apex of the story, nine centuries before, was an Elijah takes his boy, he prays over the child in his room, and what happens? The boy lives. Elijah comes down from his room, and he gives this child back to his mother. You see what's happening? Amazingly and very powerfully, Jesus has chosen, has elected to Well, essentially do a parallel miracle nine centuries later. He even uses the same words here back in verse 16. He said, he gave him back to his mother. Identical to Elijah's miracle earlier on, nine centuries earlier. See, Elijah was this man, a great prophet of God, which is exactly what the people were saying about Jesus here. He's a great prophet. But Elijah and Jesus differ in one great way. Elijah had to place his hands on the child. Jesus just speaks. And the boy is healed. You see, the people here in these last couple of verses, they're beginning to grasp the significance of not only the parallels between Elijah and Jesus, but also the distinctions. As they say in the following verse, God has come to help his people. See, Elijah always pointed forward. There was going to be someone who God was going to promise and who was going to come to rescue his people. Elijah pointed to him. And Jesus now demonstrates that he is, if you like, the greater Elijah. And he's also that long-awaited promised king from God. The, The Bible uses the term just Messiah or Christ. God has come to help his people. And my friends, we need it. Even a charming chap like Dickie needs it. But many of you will say, you might be saying right now in your own hearts, hey, 
I'm okay. I don't need this Jesus guy, however nice he seems to be. Maybe not. In your minds right now, maybe not. You're thinking, oh, I'm all right. You've got the money. Some of you are very successful. Some of you have got very fulfilling relationships. And you're saying to me right now in your head, you're going, hey, there's no hole in my life. You can't appeal to that kind of argument. And in that thinking right now, you are no different to me or anyone else sat in this room. What we perceive and even project to others is contentment, it is security, it is strength, and it is poise. We understand that. And we all feel the burden of it living in London. Let me read a few words to you, if I can, written over 150 years ago by George Eliot, written in his book called Middlemarch. It's a novel, yes, but he was, uh, if you like, making comment on British society, colonial society as well, a few South Africans here. He wrote this, If we could really hear, the kind of hearing that could hear grass grow, but it was an emotional hearing, we would hear a roar on the other side of silence, but it would be so loud and unbearable that we would die. His point is this. If we could hear all the pain and the struggle and the sorrow within just the individuals within this room right now, Eliot just says, it would be unbearable if we could hear the emotion of everyone here and we would die. Oh, it's it's poetic license, of course. And maybe you're thinking, well, that's not me. I'm all right. Life's pretty good. I remember my first funeral as a church minister. I remember the very, very wealthy banker. He was at Barcap, I think, from Canary Wharf. Got out of his amazing car. I loved his car. It was a supercar. He had an amazing suit on. He looked incredibly dapper, and his wife was immaculately dressed. And he picked up uh, at the back of the hearse, which he walked around to with his wife, a little white coffin. And it was about that long. And in it lay his stillborn baby. And I remember his words to me that day. And I paraphrased, but it was something like this. I don't have the money for this. His sentiment was, I can't sort this out. I can sort everything else out in my life, but I can't sort this out. As Eliot would say, it's the roar on the other side of silence. It may be the grief of losing a loved child, and I pray that will never, ever be you. It may be that you're rejected as a valentine. You may be a rejected wife or a rejected husband, an ignored boyfriend, an ignored girlfriend. You may be depressed. Every day is so dark, so dark that you think it's impossible to have even just one positive thought. That and for every struggle between, the great comfort is that Jesus hears and his compassion goes out to every single one of us. But his compassion isn't like my compassion. It is not restricted uh, in its response. He doesn't, as I might do or you might do, and rightly so, you know, say to, I'll look after you, I'll comfort you, I'll protect you, I'll provide, give, give you security, I'll, I'll give you time when I can. They're all good things. 
but they're restricted. He says to the woman, stop crying. It's amazing that, isn't it? It seems so insensitive, doesn't it? She's just, a son's in a coffin. Stop crying. But it's said in confident love. It's the prelude to what he's going to do. There are tears in her eyes, but they're reflecting the joy of heaven. The tears of pain in the world mixed, I guess, with tears of joy as she sees in Jesus this wonderful compassion, this sacrificial love and powerful love that offers, they get glimmers of it here, eternal salvation. God has come, my friends, to help his people. He's come in his love to help you. And dare I say, you need it. I need it. And you need it too. Your money, your power, your looks, all those things that you find great security in, your relationships, they'll provide you a modicum of hope and a modicum of happiness. Enjoy them. They're great blessings. But this miracle of love points beyond today and tomorrow and is a compassionate warning to all of us. And I want to ask you, do you hear Jesus' voice today? In love he calls every one of us. That's quite a heavy end, wasn't it, really? I'm not going to finish it like that. I'm going to finish it on a lighter note. Who remembers these? Love hearts. Do we all remember those? This is brilliant. These are fantastic little sweets. Do, do South Africans have love hearts? No? Basically, they're little sweets, and you open them up, and they've got a little sentiment on them. And this one says, I will. Oh. Oh. My son gave them to me today. It's really sweet, isn't he? Next one says, oh, look at this. Like you. That's really nice. There you go. I like you, Rob. Oh, oh. Or Alex, that's a really nice one. Here we go. See what the next one is. Be mine. I better give that to my wife at the back, but she can have that later. I'll probably throw it, accidentally smash her glasses or something like that. No, my luck. Look, love hearts are fun, aren't they? What's interesting about them is neither the sweetness or the sentiment lasts. And if I were to open these, and they would be essentially to summarize what we've been looking at from Jesus, it would begin with true love, of course. And the first would be understanding compassion. And the second would be ultimate sacrifice, shown in his, the gift of himself on the cross. Thirdly, infinite power. He can bring a dead man back to life, and he can you too. And fifthly, he offers eternal salvation in his love. A saving love if you hear his voice and you trust him. My friends, God has come in his love to help his people. And it is the truest love that you will ever know. I'm going to ask him, we've got about three or four minutes. Why don't you just turn to the people beside you? We sometimes do this here at Christchurch Hillsford. Just have a think, you know. One thing, maybe, that you think, he was talking absolute rubbish there, and you want to ask a question, that's fine. Or you just want some points of clarification. Or one thing that you just thought, hey, I want to think about that a bit more when I leave, that's okay. Why don't you just speak to the people beside you, the people you came with, and just have a little think, just for two minutes, and then I'll close and hand over to Ali. When you have a little chat.